0: if life came with an undo button, you know, that little undo button on computer programs. If you make a mistake, it kind of corrects all of your mistakes. You know, you're typing up a paper and all of a sudden your screen looks like a crossword puzzle because you messed something up or clicked something or one of your children came and touched something and you remember you have that magical undo button. I remember one time I was editing a drone video and after spending hours uh, working on that, on that video, um, it was gone from, from the screen, from the program. I couldn't find it anywhere. So I remembered, oh yeah, there's that undo button. Maybe that will bring it back. And sure enough, it did. Now, if only life had an undo button, an undo button that would erase our mistakes and give us a clean slate, give us a new beginning, that would be a really amazing thing. And I'm sure for many in this room, the opportunity of a new beginning sounds really, really nice. Maybe you'd hit undo on that time you cheated on your test. Or maybe you'd hit undo that time you gave in to peer pressure and began an uncontrollable addiction to drugs. Maybe you'd hit undo on that time you lost your temper in front of your children, or that time you cheated on your spouse, or that time you had an abortion, or that time you got a DUI. Maybe you'd hit undo on that time you were the victim of abuse, or on that season of your life where you were the one being bullied and mocked. Or maybe you just want to hit undo on an entire season of your life, maybe your whole childhood. See, the bad news is that we do not have an undo button for life. We can't simply erase all of our bad decisions, all of the bad things we've done, all of the bad things that were done to us. But the good news is that everyone has the opportunity for a new beginning. Everyone. Regardless of your mistakes, regardless of your sins, regardless of your regrets, regardless of your pain, regardless of maybe a season in your entire life, what God wants you to know this morning, this first Sunday of Advent, Is that you can have a new beginning. And see, the very first words of our New Testament make this very clear, points to this truth. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the very first words of our New Testament say this The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, see, the word genealogy here is actually uh, the word for Genesis. It literally uh, says the book of the Genesis of Jesus Christ. Now, these opening words of the New Testament would have immediately grabbed the attention of a first century Jew because they understood the word Genesis to mean beginning. So it's the name of the first book of the entire Old Testament, the book of Genesis. It's the story of the beginning of Of creation in the beginning of human history. So it's likely that Matthew intentionally chose this word to signal to us that the coming of Jesus Christ as a baby born in Bethlehem means the opportunity for a new Genesis, a new beginning. In other words, the birth of the king is God's invitation to a new beginning. As we enter this Christmas season, let's not lose sight of the good news that the birth of Jesus is God's announcement to us that he wants to give us a new beginning. The birth of the king is God's invitation to a new beginning. So this morning we're beginning our new Advent series that we're calling A Son is Given. And we're looking at the birth and work of Jesus um, through the lens, uh, through the particular viewpoint of each of the four gospel writers. Hundreds of years before the son of God took on flesh and entered the scene of human history, the Isaiah, uh, the prophet Isaiah said this, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So each of the four gospels highlight a different aspect of Jesus as son. So this morning, we're looking at Matthew, where uh, the emphasis is on Jesus as son of David. Next week, we'll be looking at Mark, where the emphasis is on Jesus as the son of God. Then we'll look Luke, Luke, uh, the emphasis there is Jesus as the son of Mary. And then John, where the emphasis is on Jesus as the son of man. So this morning, we're going to focus on the first half of Matthew chapter 1. Now, some have called Matthew 1, the forgotten chapter, of the Christmas story because it's not one that we typically think about when we're thinking about Christmas because it's simply a a genealogy of some of Jesus's ancestors. It's not the typical Christmas story with the the stars and the shepherds and the wise men and the stable. But understand here that by giving us this long list of um, seemingly irrelevant names, Matthew's intent is to help us understand who Jesus is by explaining the people that he came from. In particular, The original people reading or or listening to this gospel uh, were Jews. And they would uh, only entertain claims of a person to be the Messiah if that person met all of the Old Testament qualifications for a Messiah. So in the opening line of his gospel, Matthew uh, offers two primary lines of evidence proving that Jesus is qualified as the Messiah. He's a descendant of the father of the Jewish nation, Abraham. Abraham and he's a descendant of Israel's greatest king, David. So Matthew 1.1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, notice first the the phrasing here, where it says the genealogy of Jesus Christ. This phrasing is uh, very unusual because typical Jewish genealogies um, would put um, the the oldest person uh, first. In this case, it would be, uh, Abraham. So r- typically this would originally ha- have read um, or, or may have uh, read if someone was writing this without Matthew's, uh, not without Matthew's intention here, it would say the genealogy of Abraham. And then it would follow all the way down to Jesus. But here what Matthew's doing is he's putting Jesus up front. He says the genealogy of Jesus. So Matthew names his genealogy after Jesus, who's the final descendant, in the lineage, because what he's doing is he's letting us know that right up front, right off the bat, that Jesus is more important than, and Jesus is superior to every single person who preceded him, including David and including Abraham. And second, the fact that Matthew connects Jesus to David and to Abraham means that he wants us to go back and understand two very powerful moments in Israel's history where God gave two very incredible promises. So let's look first at Abraham. Abraham is known as the father of Israel. So some 2,000 years before the birth of Christ, about 2,000 BC, God begins the process of setting apart a people for himself by calling uh, this 75-year-old man named Abraham. He calls Abraham to follow him, and we read this in Genesis chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So, so God makes some pretty remarkable promises to Abraham here, including the promise that in Abraham, all of the nations, all the peoples of the earth will find blessing that they'll be blessed. So in faith, Abraham responds to God's calling. And then, fast forward a few decades, and Abraham faces his greatest test of faith. And he responds to that test with incredible faith. And after proving that he truly does believe in God's promises, God reiterates his blessing to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. God says this, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now as much of a blessing that the nation of Israel was to the rest of the earth and continues to be, God isn't making the statement here that the blessing of the whole world is going to come through the nation of Israel. God here is talking about a single offspring Of Abraham who'd come to bless the nations. And this is exactly what Paul says, what the apostle Paul says in his letter to the Galatians. Galatians 3.16, Paul says this, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, meaning referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. So when Matthew tells us here that Jesus is the descendant of Abraham, that he's the son of Abraham. He's not simply saying that Jesus is just a descendant of Abraham, right? Any Jew could really make that claim that they're descended from Abraham. Rather, he's pointing to Jesus as the one who fulfills this 2,000-year-old promise that God made to bless the nations of the earth. It's through Jesus that this blessing was going to happen. See, Jesus is not a son of Abraham. He's the son of Abraham. The incredible promise that God made to Abraham is fulfilled in the one who was born to the Virgin Mary in a stable in Bethlehem. And then there's a second promise that Matthew wants us to understand, and this time in connection with Israel's greatest king, David. So you fast forward about a thousand years to a thousand, a thousand years after Abraham, so about a thousand BC before Christ, the people of Israel grew in number. And they finally occupied Canaan, the land of promise, the land that God promised them. And while there, they demanded a human king. They wanted a human king because that's what all the other surrounding nations had. So they wanted what they had. So God basically says, have it your way, you can have a king. So the Israelites immediately crown a man named Saul, King Saul. He was the first king. And um, Saul was uh, the, one of the tallest, and he was a mighty warrior, so they thought he'd also be a great king. And it turned out, though, that Saul wasn't up to the task of leading the people of Israel spiritually. So what you see is the prophet Samuel. He ventures to this little podunk town called Bethlehem, and there he's in search of a new king, someone he wants um, to, to make a new king. looks at all the, the, the sons of, of Jesse And none of them are qualified. And then all of a sudden he lays eyes upon this young shepherd boy named David. And he says, that's the one. So David then, some years later, becomes king. He's destined to be the next king. And under David's leadership, Israel flourishes. Now, despite all of his faults and all of his failures, which we'll see a couple of them in a bit, David was said to be a man after God's own heart. And on one occasion, God made an incredible promise to David, a promise that would outlive David. In 2 Samuel 7, God said this, he said, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So with this promise, God tells David that his kingdom will endure and be established forever. The problem is about 400 years after God made this promise, the last the king of Israel um, was deported and, and removed from his kingship. And David's line of kings came to an end then. And that happened um, during the Babylonian exile, during the, the exile of Daniel, which we recently studied. So what happens then to God's promise to David? Well, the prophets never once doubted God's promise. See, the prophet Isaiah foretold of a king who would come from David's line and rule forever. In Isaiah 9, that famous Old Testament Christmas passage, Isaiah says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." through the prophet Jeremiah, uh, God foretold of a righteous king who would come and resurrect David's line. And you see this in Jeremiah 23. It says, "'Behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, "'and he shall reign as king and deal wisely "'and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. "'In his days Judah will be saved "'and Israel will dwell securely, "'and this is the name by which he will be called, "'the Lord is our righteousness.'" Then you also had the prophet Hosea, who foretold of the days when Israel would have no king, but even then God would remain true to upholding his promise. Hosea chapter three says this, for the children of Israel shall dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness In the latter days. So, for nearly 600 years, the people of Israel went without any legitimate king in David's line. See, they were ruled by the Babylonians, they were ruled by the Assyrians, then the Medes, then the Persians, then the Greeks, and then finally they were ruled by the Romans. And it was under Roman rule where Jesus was born in Bethlehem. See, but the faithful Jews knew the great prophecies of old. They believed God's promises and they desperately longed for this royal descendant of David. And that's exactly why Matthew opens up his gospel by telling us this is the book of the genealogy, the Genesis of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew's letting his Jewish readers know and us that those 600 years without a king have now come to an end. All those years of them waiting and yearning for this royal king had now come to a close. God's great promises to Abraham and David have now been fulfilled that the legitimate king, the legitimate king from the royal line of David is now here. He's been born. He's the king who ushers in a new covenant and who offers everyone a new beginning. So the first thing we learn from Jesus's fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and David is simply this. Jesus is the promise-keeping king. What kind of king is Jesus? Jesus is the promise-keeping king. Jesus, as the son of God, the eternal son of God who took on human flesh is able to keep all of the promises made by the father. He's the king who can be trusted to keep every single one of his promises. Now, of course, we're not used to leaders who make promises and keep them. Uh, that's, that's why we don't trust many in authority because of the track record of so many broken promises. But Jesus is a king unlike any other. Whatever God promises, he makes good on. Whatever God says, he does. He does. Back in 1956, um, there was an issue in Time magazine that had an article in it, and that article tells the story of a schoolteacher in Canada, a man by the name of Everick Storms, and this man made a detailed study of all the promises of the Bible. The article, according to Time Magazine, said this. During his 27th reading of the Bible, a task which took him a year and a half, Storms came up with a grand total of 8,810 promises. Almost 7,500 of them being promises made by God to humankind. 8,810 promises. That's a lot of promises. Of course, not every single promise is in the Bible is yours or mine. Some are time-bound, some are exclusive to specific uh, groups like Nation Nation of Israel, for example. But the fact remains that there are countless promises that God has made available to you and to me. What are some of these? Well, just to name a few, we have the promise of everlasting life to anyone who believes in Jesus, right? That's what John 3.16 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We also have the promise of peace, peace for our fears and our troubles and our anxieties. John 14, 27, Jesus says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Then we also have the promise of a heavenly home when we depart from this life. John 14, also Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. And I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. We also have the promise of an eternal inheritance that will make this world's riches look like junk. First Peter says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. We also have the promise of God's unfading and unchanging presence. Hebrews 13, he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere man do to me? These promises don't even scratch the surface of all the promises that are in the Bible. No matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Christ Jesus. To believe in Jesus is to believe in all of God's promises. As the son of David and as the son of Abraham, Jesus is the promise-keeping king. He's the faithful, consistent, and trustworthy king who offers you a new beginning. As Pastor Ray Pritchard has said about Christmas, he said, Christmas can be described in four words, promises made, promises kept. Now, we haven't even gone beyond the first verse of Matthew chapter 1, but remember that I said Matthew 1 has a long genealogy. We're not going to go verse by verse through all of it, but it helps to see the passage as a whole to kind of understand Matthew's thinking and and his structure. See, Matthew, what he's doing is he's cramming 2,000 years of biblical history into the first 17 verses. And in these 17 verses, he lists 42 generations total, starting with Abraham going all the way down, to Jesus. Now we know that there were more than 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus, but Matthew's point is not to make uh, an exhaustive uh, genealogy here, right? He's abbreviating the genealogy in particular to communicate a particular aspect of theology. So Matthew breaks these 42 generations into three groups of 14. So in verses two through six, if you look at that chunk, Matthew gives the genealogy from Abraham to David. And there he's making the point, proving the point that Jesus is the son of Abraham. Then in verses seven to 11, you have the genealogy of David to the uh, deportation um, in, in Babylon, their exile. And here, Matthew is reinforcing the point that Jesus is legitimate um, heir to uh, David's line. Then you have verses 12 through 16, and that's the genealogy from the Babylonian exile all the way to the birth of Christ. And then, verse 17, Matthew tells us that he organized it this way. He says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So we already understand now why Matthew... um, Makes it a point to show the, the genealogy between um, Abraham and, and David. Um, he's making, proving the point that Jesus is the son of Abraham and he is the son of David. But also notice that the Babylonian exile features a central um, to this genealogy. And the reason is because Matthew's trying to communicate that Jesus is the climax of the restoration of Israel from exile. See, with his arrival, Jesus broke their bondage and he brought restoration. So we know Jesus is the promise-keeping king. Now we see a second way Jesus is king. Jesus is the bondage-breaking king. That's the kind of king Jesus is, the bondage-breaking king. See, the prophet Isaiah foretold of someone who would come as God's anointed one to set free all of those who are in bondage. Isaiah 61 says this, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. See, Jesus himself quoted this verse. We see this in Luke's gospel. Jesus quotes this verse and he's making the point that he's the anointed one that Isaiah prophesied about. See, Jesus is the one who came to bring good news to the poor. Jesus is the one who came to bring healing to the brokenhearted. Jesus is the one who came to bring freedom to the captives. Jesus is the one who came to tear down the prison walls and break the chains of the bondage of sin and death who, who are everybody who's oppressed by sin and death. So whatever it might be that holds you in a death grip, whatever you walked into these doors with this morning, whatever is robbing you of joy or peace, whatever, whatever fears or worries kept you up last night, know that Jesus is the bondage-breaking king who wants to release you, who wants to heal you, and who wants to set you free. Whether it's dependence on drugs an addiction to porn, a financial crisis, a relationship in ruin, a cesspool of of self-destructive thoughts. King Jesus came to undo the destruction of sin and death and to reverse the effects of the fall. You need only to surrender to him as your savior and as your king and allow him to do in you and for you what you can never do for yourself. Then you walk in the freedom that he's purchased for you. There's this story told of an evil little boy who invented a special way to capture beautiful songbirds. One day he was walking along a road and he had his um, his cages with, with all these little songbirds that he trapped. A kind old man noticed the boy and, and asked him what he had all those birds for. And to the old man's horror, the kid said, He planned on setting some of them on fire to see how long it would take them to fly away and that he would release the rest in his barn to use as practice for his BB gun. The old man then asked him, if I give you every single dollar in my wallet, all the money I have, will you give me the songbirds? Will you give me them in their cages? And the little boy thought about the money and said, absolutely, take them, give me your money. Now the old man then opened the cage after he purchased all those songbirds. He opened the cage to see what the birds would do. Some of those birds flew away immediately. Others eventually flew away only after he urged them to fly away. But many of the birds remained in the cage because they didn't realize that their freedom had been bought and paid for by the old man. So these birds live the rest of their lives as prisoners in a cage. See, Jesus purchased us at the expense of his own life in order to give us a new life of freedom. So let's not be content with getting comfortable in our own little cages. Let's refuse to remain as defeated people who feel trapped in an endless cycle of bondage. Instead, let us take Jesus for who he is. He's the bondage-breaking king who's crushed the power of sin and death with his own death and his own resurrection. The birth of King Jesus is God's invitation to you for a new beginning. Jesus is your promise-keeping, bondage-breaking king. Amen? Amen. (laughs) Now, there's one more thing in our passage that I want us to observe. See, in ancient times, genealogies weren't used to communicate just a person's heritage. They were used to uh, kind of as a resume of sorts, Um, you know, because it spoke a lot about who you were um, based on the people that you came from, right? It was your family. It was your your pedigree, your clan that made up your resume. So do you think in this genealogy, Matthew would only select uh, the best, the holiest, the most moral and upright of Jesus's ancestors to include here? but Matthew actually does the opposite of that. He doesn't hide the fact that Jesus comes from a long line of misfits and and outcasts and sinners. Why? Because Matthew wants us to know that the kinds of people Jesus came from are also the kinds of people Jesus came for. He came for sinners and rebels and outcasts. So let's highlight some of these people then that we see in Jesus's rather crooked family tree. Uh, Matthew uh, verse three says this, it says uh, that Jesus came from and says "And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. So right off the bat, we see that Judah is included in the family tree of Jesus. Now, Judah, if you don't remember him, he was the deceitful and bitter older brother to Joseph. And it was Judah's idea to sell Joseph into slavery because he couldn't stand his little brother because he was daddy's favorite. And we also see Judah as the one who was completely indifferent and apathetic towards God's precepts and his commandments when he went and married somebody he wasn't supposed to. And notice that Matthew says that Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Now that Tamar is included in this list is shocking. See, first of all, she is a woman and there's, there are, at least five women mentioned in in the genealogy here, but women were never included in Jewish genealogies because they were viewed in that culture as second-class citizens and not trustworthy. And and obviously God's kingdom is upside down, so Matthew's making that clear here. But second, Tamar is one of those people that the Jews really would want to forget. See, if you don't remember the story, Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law. Tamar was married to uh, Judah's oldest son, and the oldest son uh, died. So uh, Judah promised her um, that he'd give one of her other sons to her. Um, The second son uh, refused to move forward with it. And then the third son, uh, by that point, Judah just completely ignores the promise he made to Tamar. So she takes matters into her own hands. We see in the Old Testament, there's the story where she dresses like a prostitute. She covers her face with a veil to hide her identity. And then she struts herself in front of Judah, her father-in-law. Judah then propositions her and sleeps with her. And then um, before he wakes up, she leaves the room and kind of scurries out. Then three months after that, Judah gets word that his daughter-in-law, Tamar, is pregnant. As a result of prostitution, he's furious and he wants her burned to death until she says, surprise, you're the one who got me pregnant. And then some months later, twins are born. And it was through one of those twins, one of those twins born of incest that the royal line of Messiah passed. See, Jesus descends from the hypocritical Judah and the exploited Tamar. Look at some other people, verse 5. And Salmon, is fishy there, making sure you're paying attention. <laughs> and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse. Now, notice Rahab is in this list. Who's Rahab? Well, Matthew, again, is mentioning another woman, a Canaanite woman, a complete outsider. Now, her story is found in the book of Joshua, and in that story, there were some spies, some Jewish spies going to the land of Jericho to scout out the land that God wanted them to enter into, and there some of the uh, military in, and the king of Jericho found out that there were some Jewish spies there, so she hides the spies, and she lies to the king and, and says that they already left, but they were really hiding in her house, but from the story, we also learn that her profession was prostitution. She was a prostitute. Now she ends up eventually joining uh, the company of Israel and she marries a Jewish boy. And then they have a son named Boaz and he becomes the great, great grandfather of King David. So Jesus descends from a Canaanite prostitute. And then verse five also mentions Ruth. And a lot of you are familiar with the story of Ruth. Ruth Um, was a Gentile from Moab. Now, what's fascinating about that is that the Moabites were one of Israel's most hated enemies. They hated each other. So Ruth ends up getting married to a Jewish man, and he dies, so now she's a widow. So she decides to follow her Jewish mother-in-law back to her city of Bethlehem, where she eventually meets Boaz. She marries him, and she becomes the great-grandmother of King David. So Jesus descends from a lonely and despised foreigner. And then, look at verse 6. It says this and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. See, Matthew has already established the fact that Jesus is the son of David. But here he reiterates it again. And at first glance, we might look at this and think: finally, someone respectable in Jesus' lineage, a man of royalty, a king. But in case we're tempted to remember David only as Israel's greatest king, Matthew gives us a reality check by reminding us of one of David's greatest sins. See, in one of the great understatements of the Bible, we're told that David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Now, Matthew knew the name of Uriah's wife. It was Bathsheba. Um, They all knew that. But he writes it this way so we would recall one of those uh, tragic Game of Thrones-like episodes in Israel's history. At one point in David's story, he was running for his life from King Saul, um, and he's surrounded by a bunch of warriors who pledge their allegiance to David. So they follow him out into the wilderness, and they're with him everywhere he goes. These men risk everything for David. And one of those men was Uriah. Some years go by, then David becomes king. David wakes up in the afternoon, probably after a little afternoon nap, and gets up, goes to the roof of the palace for a little afternoon stroll while he's up there. He sees, in a different location, this beautiful woman bathing. And he says, I want that. I want her. Bring her to me. He commands to have her brought to him. And that woman was Bathsheba, Uriah's wife. So they bring Bathsheba to David. David sleeps with her, gets her pregnant. And then so David takes it then to the next level and arranges for Uriah to be killed in the front lines of battle so he can marry her. So in the genealogy then, Matthew leaves off the name Bathsheba, not as a slight to Bathsheba, but as a slam to David. See, it was out of that dysfunctional family, out of that deeply flawed man that the Messiah came through one of their children, Solomon. And see, the reason Matthew draws attention to all of these people in Messiah's lineage is to communicate the reality that it is only by the sovereign grace of God that these people are included in the line that leads to Jesus. Jesus just as it's only by the sovereign grace of God that our names are included in the line that leads from Jesus. So again, we ask the question, what kind of king is Jesus? He's the promise-keeping king. He's the bondage-breaking king. And here we see that he's the sinner-redeeming king. Jesus is the sinner-redeeming king. He came from sinners for sinners. He came for the deceitful. Jesus came for those who are bitter, because of the hand they've been dealt in life. Jesus came for those who have lived a life of indifference and apathy toward God. Jesus came for the sexually scandalous. He came for the religious hypocrites. He came for the helpless and the forgotten. He came for those whom society would regard as outsiders. Jesus came for the foreigners and the despised and the lonely. He came for the murderers, the prostitutes, and the adulterers. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus, the Messiah... See, Jesus as the Messiah, though he was sinless, and the way God managed all that was by allowing Jesus to kind of short-circuit the sin cycle by being born of the Virgin Mary, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So though Jesus was sinless, he came from sinners for sinners. And it's only by grace, only by grace, that anyone is included in his family. Man or woman, Jew or Gentile, rich or poor, Royalty or peasant, none of that matters in the economy of God. In God's economy, it's not the good people who are in who are in and the bad people who are out. Everyone is in only by the grace of the Lord Jesus. It is only because of what Jesus has done for us that we can have a good standing before God. Jesus is the sinner-redeeming king. He's the promised Messiah who's in the business of taking sinners like you and me and making us new creations with new identities and gives us a new purpose. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Jesus is the promise-keeping, bondage-breaking, sinner-redeeming king. Amen. Amen. Would you close your eyes? Just close your eyes and enter into an attitude of prayer. Do you need a new beginning this morning? Maybe you've been a believer for some time but have wandered away from home. Or maybe you're a believer who's been uh, trapped in the bondage of addiction or anxiety, stuck in a cage of bitterness or self-sufficiency or overwhelmed by busyness and distraction. Will you make the decision, if that's you, to recommit your life to Christ this morning? Because even believers sometimes need a new beginning. God's mercies are new every morning. And the birth of the king is God's invitation to you for a new beginning. On the other hand, maybe you're someone who has always been on the outside of the family of Christ. And you're only coming to church to appease your spouse or because someone invited you. But now you're realizing you need a new beginning. Or maybe you've thought that you're somehow too great of a sinner to be included in God's family. If that's what you believe, I hope that you understand that this morning that there is room in the family of God for you. Because if there's room in the family of God for people like Judah and Tamar, people like Rahab and Ruth, people like David and Bathsheba, then there's room for you. Jesus is the faithful, consistent, trustworthy, promise-keeping, bondage-breaking, sinner-redeeming king who offers you a new beginning. The birth of the king is God's invitation to a new beginning. So if any of that describes you, just pray this prayer with me in your hearts. Lord Jesus, whether it's the first time or the 101st time, I profess that I believe in you. I believe that you're the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who paid the penalty of death for my sin, the penalty that belonged to me that you took upon yourself. And I believe that three days later, you were raised to life by the power of God. Jesus, I believe that you've loved me from the beginning and I'm making the choice to love you in return. Give me a new beginning this very moment. Enable me to trust all of your promises and empower me by your spirit to break the chains of bondage in my life. Remind me to walk in the joy and the freedom that you've secured for me. I accept, Jesus, your gracious gift of forgiveness. I rejoice that my debt of sin is paid in full and I surrender all that I am And all that I have to you, Lord. Thank you for being my savior from sin and my leader for life. Still in an attitude of prayer with everybody's heads bowed, I want to ask you to slip up your hand if you said that prayer with me this morning. Whether you said it for the first time or whether you're a believer, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Let me pray for you. Thank you, Jesus, for all of these men and women in this room who have, whether for the first time, are committing to follow you as their Lord and Savior. Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them the riches that, are, that belong to them in Christ Jesus. Everything that became true of them that moment that they said yes to you, And Lord, I thank you for uh, your children in this room who are making the commitment to uh, rededicate their lives to you. Lord, I pray that we would all experience the joy and hope of this season and not be bogged down by the noise and distractions uh, all around us, by the darkness of the world, but um, Lord, that by the indwelling Christ that his light would shine through and pierce the darkness with his love, his joy, his his peace, and his grace. Lord, we thank you for giving us such an amazing Savior, an amazing Messiah. Thank you, Jesus, that you are our King. We love you. All God's children said, "Amen." amen.